0: Hey folks, I'm Will Jarvis, along with my dad, Dr. David Jarvis, I host the podcast Narratives. Narratives is a project exploring the ways in which the world is better than it has been, the ways it is worse, and the paths toward making a better, more definite future. I hope you enjoy it. Hey, folks! Today on the podcast, we've got Ben Reinhardt. Did I get the your name pronunciation yep. right? Okay, the German uh, "i" yeah. in the in the back. Okay, yep. perfect. Uh, so, Ben, uh, I'd like to get kicked off. Could you just give us a you know kind of a brief bio? You know what your mission statement is, and and what you're trying to do in the world.
1: Sure uh, so so I'll start with that um, very simply it's I, I want to there to be more awesome sci-fi shit in the world. Um, am I allowed to say that uh, yeah, I, I forgot yeah, to absolutely. ask okay, okay. Um, not <laughs> all right um, and uh, so that's that, that's at the end of the day like that's that's what I'm trying to to do and um, I guess my bio is I like if you want to sort of tie a narrative around it, it's me trying out different ways of of doing that and realizing that they're not the right way. And so trying a different way. Um, so my, like I I went to grad school cause I thought, ah, yes, if I get a PhD then and like build spaceships, that's the correct way to uh, make there be more awesome sci-fi stuff. And um, I found like that wasn't quite the right thing. And so I was like, ah, yes, if I go and I join a startup and I build, amazing uh, augmented reality technology. That will be the way to to bring the sci-fi future. Um, And uh, that was not the right way. So I was like, ah, yes, if I quit and uh, start a company, that will be the right way. Um, That there there was some trouble there. And so I was like, ah, yes, well, if I Then instead help other people start companies, and so I I went and I worked at a VC firm and this place called Entrepreneur First, and uh, maybe that will be the way to to enable it. Um, I realized that that wasn't quite right either. Um, So now I am I've I've come to the conclusion that the current institutional structures that we have right now are not uh, they constrain certain activities out of. Uh, happening that I think are are essential to having there be more awesome sci-fi stuff in the world and so I'm trying to figure out um, what what institutional structures might be able to fill that gap and how to build them
0: that's that's that's, that's awesome do you think there has been a a change since like the 70s and, and how fast innovation has gone on. And like, so, you know, we've had like, we had these really wacky scientists back in the day, like Peter Thiel has this line that, you know, the the letter from Einstein wouldn't get to uh, the president's desk today, you know, and, and that seems to be true on some, some level. Like the, it sounds like, it almost seems like academia has weeded out the weird people, like Isaac Newton, you know, half of his time was like on—I don't know if it was half of his time—was on like alchemy, and the other half was gravity, right? I think
1: that possibly seems to be more like, than half of his. time. Than,
0: <laughs>
1: That's good. Like, to know. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, so yes, I, I do sort of buy into the whole uh, great stagnation. Uh,
0: thesis. Kind of argument. Uh,
1: yeah. So, so, um, so I, I definitely think that that is the case. Um, I think the the more interesting question is like is why is that the case and then the even more interesting question is even putting aside like the the why is only interesting insofar as we can use that to reverse that or or sort of speed things up again exactly in, in my opinion
0: that makes a lot of sense so what have you found so far because i i know you so you've been you've tried a lot of different things. What has been most effective? What do you think the the clearest vision you have for kind of accelerating technology and, you know, on the back end science as well? Yeah, uh, so
1: I'm going to take sort of one step back and, and try to like disambiguate that a little bit because yeah. I, I think one of the the, the the sort of meta realizations is that there are many that, that sort of lumping it all together beyond saying like, there's some problem. Uh, right. it's, it's not too useful to, to lump it all together. Um, so I would sort of disambiguate and say like, I think um, sort of start are really good at a certain set of activities, right? So they're really good at bringing novel solutions to new markets. Um, but then I think the the trick is that a lot of the, the activities that need to happen now are, are not that. Um, so uh, in terms of things that are especially effective like i i i think at the level of granularity of a of a podcast um yeah. the things that i would say are going to sound like th- like things that everybody sort of knows the the trick gotcha. is like how to make them happen right so it's like get like really good teams of smart people together like uh like give them a, like a good focus and and let them go but then like right. keep them keeps them sort of tightly on the rails um uh, so so I think the, the the interesting thing is like how do you uh, navigate all of the incentives that people have and that are in the world um, in order to allow those things to happen like the, to allow the effective things to happen um, that makes sense. Yeah <laughs>
0: so, so I, so I guess yeah, so I guess what you're saying is like, Startups are good at certain problems. Yeah. Um, And so like, and even when we think about venture capital, it's like, uh, and maybe Peter Thiel again, someone at Founders Fund has this line. It's like, uh, venture capital is, you know, between like a million dollars and like, or maybe a little bit less and then a billion dollars. Like, but it's somewhere between there. Once you get above that, it's like, this is not where venture capital, you know, would be useful. Uh, So like, are you saying there's like uh, things that are too capital intensive? Or they're just like if there's not a clear revenue opportunity or profit motive immediately, like if it's too long term, there's no reason for people to go after it.
1: Yeah, I, I would say all of the above. I, I think what the, the way that I would frame it is that uh, venture capital has a, a certain set of constraints. Um, and and I, I think the... The interesting thing is that you can sort of think of all institutional structures as having a certain set of constraints. And when you start looking at it through that lens, then you start to see like, okay, like what things are uh, sort of constrained out of existing. So, for example, um, venture capitalists have the constraint that they need to raise a new fund every couple of years in order to raise a new fund, uh, you need to go to your LPs, right? Show like, return on so, capital. Exactly, exactly. And trouble. so and so, it's like, even if you're making a 10 year bet, um, which, which VCs do, you need to be able to show that that bet is sort of continuously increasing. Uh, and so you gotcha. need, and like the only way that you can price a venture capital investment is if you raise a round. Um, right right and so you're as a venture capitalist you're then uh, sort of constrained out of investing in things that don't have sort of a legible regular price increase
0: um, gotcha
1: and so it, it's it's like a little bit more subtle than just the amount of capital but um, yeah so so it's like
0: Things that are like difficult to value in the short term, at least.
1: Yeah, or or like, and, and that like don't that that don't sort of step, follow like a nice a nice growth curve, um, right? So gotcha. Yeah.
0: So what would be a good example of that? Like like a problem like that.
1: Um. So I, I guess like from from my like I'll I'll just like my my personal experience. Yeah, definitely. Um, sort of like trying to build a an entirely new system I think is really sort of falls into that. So like, like I, I worked at a company called magically for a couple of years and we were trying to build, you know, like, and it, basically they, they were trying to build like an entirely new um, like computer interface uh, and really and cool
0: demos. I remember that super cool demos. And
1: like the, the technology was super cool. The trick was that there were so many pieces that needed to be built that, it wasn't like the, the rate at which they needed to like get a product out there and start showing increasing numbers. Right. um, Prevented the kind of approach that I think that they needed to successfully introduce like an entirely new way of interacting with computer. Um, So that's, that's one example. Um, I think it's uh, also just like places where like more abstractly where you want to build a new system, and in order to build that new system, you actually need to uh, create several components. And any one of gotcha. those components on their own is fairly worthless, or or like isn't worth that valuable. It's only in combination that they're they're really valuable. Gotcha. Um, the the pressure from uh, to to sort of get a product out there to start increasing in value. Um, makes you start trying to monetize each of those components, which then sort of like punts the the eventual system farther and farther off until it like never exists.
0: Right. That makes it so you focus on the the short term. You know, and I've worked in the startups since I graduated. And this is true. Like you've got this grand vision you're trying to accomplish. And then in the short term, it's like, well, you know, we got to make it to next week. Right. And exactly. so next week always dominates it all, like no matter what. Yeah, um, and you can get some Slack. Like I, I, think Scott had a post on Slack. Maybe I love that post. That, that was, yes, can studies you talk on Slack.
1: <laughs> I mean, well, um, sure. Uh, so, so Scott That's Alexander, uh, author of uh, Study Star Codex, has a post. It's called Studies on Slack, um, and it is amazing. And you, the listener, should uh, pause and go read it. Um, <laughs> I'll put a link but, in. <laughs> but in short. Um, it's, it's effectively, it makes the argument that um, in order to get sort of, like if you think of yourself as like uh, like like some water and you're trying to get to the, the lowest possible point, um, then the, like, and, and if you're like purely just doing optimization, you uh, go to the the lowest local point but that might not be the lowest global point um so like the like gotcha. global minima in, right. in in a sort of uh, optimization parlance um and, and in order to uh sort of like get to a global minima you need some amount of slack and you could imagine that in this like water analogy you could imagine that as like the ability to sometimes go against gravity um so if you get into another puddle uh, that's a poor explanation, but it's a, <laughs> I a think, yeah,
0: no, that's great. And I think you also mentioned the the development of, of like an eye. Oh, yeah, as, yeah, yeah. As, as a great example, like this is this yeah. incredibly complex thing. And you really couldn't just, you know, through these super hyper competitive processes, uh, create something as complex as an eye. Yeah, um, exactly. So that's, that's really interesting to me. So do you think some of what happened is, is things have gotten super complex competitive in some weird senses is like like so I, I think of like the academic like grant process where like essentially you know so my mother-in-law writes grants and it seems like and there's actually econ papers on this where uh all the profits from grant writing get competed away in the end yeah like it's like this complete net loss is that a real phenomena that just oh like, that's
1: I'm absolutely gonna... that's absolutely a real phenomena I think if you uh calculate the amount like like if you price uh people's time at some some amount of money and then you like multiply that by the amount of time that people in aggregate spend writing grants it comes out to be some number that's like way bigger than the amount uh, of the grant itself um yeah so so i I think you're spot on um or at least in in my my analysis uh, you're, you're spot on about um the competition and and so, like in academia, absolutely, um, there's there's a pretty strong argument. I think that um, the reason that sort of the the great R and D labs of the past went away um, is at least in large part because of increased competition on on companies. If you if you look at it, um, like. Both Xerox Park and Bell Labs, which are sort of like the the paragons right. of R&D labs, were both part of uh, monopolies, right? And so right. these people were getting monopoly rents, and that's that's sort of what they needed to to run those those labs. Um, and so this, this isn't me, like it's this tricky thing because there's like uh, culturally. Uh, sort of as 21st century Americans, we, we definitely are inculcated to to think that competition is good, right? Like competition right. is what like forces people to improve and get better. And like, I agree with that. But at the same time, <laughs> you sort of have to put on this other hat and be like, well, um, you also need a little bit of slack. Um, and I think that, that we don't have that in, in sort of our current like innovation ecosystem.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And there's this great... Uh, t- I can't remember who gave this talk. I will have to find the link, but it, they were talking about how and it was in the c- context of free trade and, and Japanese automakers, mm-hmm. and how they were they use protectionist policies <laughs> yeah. to allow like you know Japanese cars to get really good and outcompete American cars, yeah. and, and like there's these weird effects that you know like yes like free trade does get us better products at the end of the day, and like more competition gives us better cheaper products, but there are also back end effects that can happen, and we should think about them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the really good book on, on that uh, is, is this book called How Asia Works um, that sort of talks gotcha. about- interesting. Uh, um, sort of the difference between like why uh, South Korea and Japan managed to, to rebound from World War II pretty handily while countries like uh, Malaysia sort of have not. Um, and they, they really sort of go into that. Like, I mean, at the end of the day, it's like protectionism, which is like a dirty right. word. Um, but it gave the companies the slack they needed to like become
0: Toyota right like become right a, largest I mean, yeah car car auto, company. auto manufacturers yeah that which is which is quite valuable for to have that in, in your country That yeah. that's really interesting so, so I want to jump back and so you mentioned Bell Labs uh you know Xerox park these places that no longer um exist a lot a lot of because competition came through and you know got rid of all their monopoly rents and they uh they don't have the money to do it anymore and or they you know get competed away don't exist anymore Sorry, I didn't say that very well. But um,
1: Te- technically, they do. Uh, that's, oh, really? That's, yeah, that's the interesting thing. Is uh, both Bell Labs and Xerox Park are still places. They still have employees. They still do research. Do they really? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I they just know that actually. Yeah, it, it, that's. Um, they're just not.
0: It's not the same. Like
1: thing. <laughs> they're not their, their their former selves.
0: Right. So it seems like Google. Right. So they should. They are the ones that they're the most clear example to me that should be doing this because they have yeah. cash equivalents that when I checked a couple of, this was years, a couple of years ago was, it was like a hundred billion in cash equivalents. I mean, they're, they're sitting on 100, <laughs> a hundred, they're burning like, you know, some percent in just inflation every year. Right. Uh, Cause they don't know what to do with it. And it seems like this clear chance and they, they speak about being like this highly innovative company. You know, like I, I have their phone, right. I use their search engines, but they, and maybe they've done that with like uh, maybe their life sciences stuff a little bit where they've invested in the anti-aging Researchs, but it seems like they should be doing more and I often wonder if like the backlash against big tech at its core is some complaint about them not living up to the promise at the end of the day. I don't know.
1: Yeah. There's, so there's sort of, can I, can I take that two directions? Actually? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, so one is I would argue that to some extent they are, um, and, and the way that they're doing that is you look at um, the results that um, came out of DeepMind recently, right? right. That's GPT Google too. money. uh, uh, um, Exactly. But like Uh, AlphaFold. So yeah. So so we're talking in December 2020, and DeepMind recently released AlphaFold and the protein um, folding stuff. Exactly. Exactly. And like so. um, And like similarly, there's like really good work that comes out of Google Brain. So I would I would argue that those organizations actually are sort of doing that like doing the the bell labs equivalent um for google gotcha the the trick is that um i i have like a wacky theory that um in order for corporate r d to be really effective it needs to address some amount of like existential threat to the parent company gotcha and like google's existential threats come in the form of like uh software right like like they they need better software and so you could expect the, so their corporate art like their high quality corporate r&d to be in software and that's what you see um and so I, I think the the thing is like what we want is for google to have really high quality r&d in 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 atoms um but because that is not going to address an existential threat to them except in places like you know like tensor processing units like right uh, uh that that's that's not going to happen um so that's uh the the thought there and then um I think oh to your point about like people like the the sort of like the tech clash um right. against them for for not being back I think that's that's absolutely spot on and like arguably the like the whole reason Bell Labs existed was sort of as a as a, uh, as a, a peace offering to right. the American public to for like uh, AT&T to say like, look, we're, we're good guys. We, we make technology and like right. spread it into the world. Um, so yeah, I'd love to see a little more of that.
0: That's, that's, that's really interesting. Uh, yeah. I, I've got two, two responses that make me, that I've just thought about. So one is um, uh, we talked to Zvi Mashawitz have you read uh, his blog? It's pretty yes. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs>
1: so I, we, I we actually, talked, yeah. I, I know of him um because I, I played Magic the Gathering me. very competitively when I was younger. <laughs> so oh yeah, that's awesome.
0: Yeah. yeah, he's a big deal, man. It's cool. Um, yeah, so we were talking to Zvi and I've I've had this off for a while. And what you repeated, what you just told me confirms that my my pre-existing belief here is that and and I'd love to get your your take on this. Is there anything that's that we can do to motivate people that is not an existential threat? Because like, you know, like we had World War II, right? The Cold War. And these are like existential threats and we rose the challenge. COVID, we've had a lot of trouble, right? It's like not yeah. big enough. Like that's kind of scary. And then like you mentioned, like these research labs, if it's not an existential threat to the company, do, do people ever really work very hard? I, I don't know. Is there a way to get around that? Yeah, I... I don't
1: know is like the, right. the real answer is, I don't know. I would love to uh, figure it out. I, I think perhaps another way of framing it is like, how can we make existential threats be more in line with the sorts of things that we want to see like, um, and, and so where, where I go with that is like, you think about uh, like medieval cathedrals and arguably medieval cathedrals actually were addressing an existential threat because people thought that their souls were on the line and that if they did not build things to the glory of god then they were going to go to hell for a long time forever and and sort of um and so so like you could you can still put that in the existential threat framework it's just that existential threats we're a very different thing uh, to those people. And so I just sort of wonder if like, can we shift culturally so that the, the things that are existential threats um, to companies or individuals just so happen to align with the, the things that uh, we sort of want to see in the world? I don't know. That's just something to no, muse on.
0: No, that that's, it seems really important. It does seem to be a huge challenge because it, you know, we, we just have to, we have to figure out ways to motivate people or else these problems don't get solved. That, that does remind me, um, so you talked to Don Brabin. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so actually I'm talking to him, uh, in, uh, like a month or two. Excellent. Uh, I yeah. So I, I, cause I read his book and then I was like, oh, I'm going to email him because I, I found out like, okay, he's still alive, you know, and like, <laughs> here's his email. And then I found your podcast, which was super awesome with him, uh, and very informative. And, um, what do, what do you think about his idea of just, you know, essentially giving, really really smart talented weird people money and just saying go
1: yeah i i think a, a sort of again like going back to uh, a point earlier is is this this point of disambiguation i think that the sort of venture research idea the, yeah. that's sort of his thing um is really good for a certain set of activities that are essential so i think it's gotcha. really good for uh like what, what he calls like the Planck Club. So people who are really trying to sort of like pry new knowledge from the, like the grips of nature itself. Gotcha. Right. Um, and, and I think that that's, it's really good for that. What I don't think is that it's like, I don't think that that's what we should do for like everybody who has any sort of innovative idea at all. Gotcha. Um, that makes sense. Yeah.
0: So like, so maybe good for like pure research or something, but This very select group of people, maybe, but not yeah, like
1: a a select group of people, like, and and I think it's actually a really a a a fascinating challenge to try to think about sort of like what are the parameters of of like that sort of area of of like activity space, right? Where it's like, like, is it, it does it have to do with like the um. Sort of like the size of the group that you need to do the discovery, right? Because he was funding sort of like very small groups of like one to three people. It's like, is that the key right. thing? Is it the time scale? Is it like that? These were things that these people were like devoting their life's work. Um, uh, but yeah,
0: that's really yeah. It, it's really interesting. So so maybe like a partial solution to one problem is yeah, the it, exactly. And and I, my my hypothesis
1: is that that's sort of what we need is like there isn't going to be like the solution right like capital t capital s (laughs) um it's it is going to be lots of like specific solutions for specific parts of of activity
0: space that that makes a lot of sense uh do you think peer review is as evil as he says it is yes i think I'm not an academia, uh, so I don't know.
1: Yeah. Um, I think that he uh makes the strongest argument for it. Um, but I I don't think that he's wrong. Um I I, I guess maybe maybe what I would argue like I would argue that it's bad. I, but what I, I'm not as confident as he is is that it is sort of like the the soul sole perpetrator of gotcha. the problems with academic funding. I think that that that's where I I might uh soften it a little bit.
0: Gotcha. That makes but it's sense. It's terrible. It's it's bad. It's really bad. <laughs> yeah. So 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 what do you think so, some of the other problems are? Like just the grant process, you know, all the politicians win, or yeah. are there other things?
1: Yeah. I, I think there are a there, there are many, many things. Just many, many. many um, so, so, so some like I'll, I'll, I'll just like throw out some of them. Yeah. Um Is, is like, uh, and and the the thing to keep in mind is, it's like, well, at the end of the day, we really want to find, try to find, are like the root causes, and it's really tricky because like all of these factors sort of like feed into each other, and it's really unclear of like where to start untangling the 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 ball right, thread, right. um, but like. Some some problems are the fact that academia has sort of become like highly overloaded. Like we expect academia to uh, both sort of like train like train new researchers, uh, educate, do like general undergraduate education. So educate like citizens of a like a liberal republic.
0: Joe Schmidt um, coming in, you know. Yeah, exactly.
1: Uh, to do like sort of like deep exploratory natural sciences uh and at the same time do basically industrial research and at the same time basically do like military research um and at the same time like be like thought leaders right like it's like oh listen to like like the scientists that we listen to um so like they need to be like uh have like so you know so so it's like highly overloaded i i, I talked right. to, to friends who are professors and we we were like counting off the number of jobs that they actually do right. oh and they the, the professors are expected to be um administrators as well um yep. <laughs> right That's crazy. Uh, so, so 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 like professors are doing like four or five jobs at once right. um and each one involves a very different way of thinking right so like there's like my friend literally had to go from like uh like arguing with an undergraduate about the grade on the midterm to like what is the research program that i need to set up for the next five to ten years like in an afternoon (laughs)
0: like like how how are you gonna actually yeah how are you actually make discoveries when you're trying to juggle all that exactly
1: so that's like that's one of the the problems um Another is just like the the sheer number of people who hope to become professors versus the number of people who are professors, um, and then the sort of the way that professors are judged, right? So. Gotcha. Um, it's like, like, and just like the way that tenure works is right. another problem because it's like, here, come in. We're gonna judge you on like how many papers you publish and how many, uh, how much grant money you bring in in your first couple of years at the university. Right. Um, and like the people who pass through this filter that uh, filters for like uh, really aggressively publishing papers and right. uh, getting doing research are the ones who then get to stick around forever and are expected to do like 20 year projects exactly so it's like there's a little tension there
0: right exactly no that's that's really fascinating and and then you right so and then there's this huge glut right and so that just drives comp it it makes it more competitive and then you get more of these weird effects exactly it goes goes right back
1: to that competition thing where uh there's there's no slack in academia like zero
0: God, it it just it, it seems so so screwed up on so many levels. So, you, so you've recently been writing a little bit about another organization that, that does things a little bit differently, and uh, we've done a little bit of work uh, with them in the past. Uh, so DARPA, and, and so yep. what makes makes DARPA special, and maybe the program manager model that's a little bit different.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, the the thing that sort of defines the DARPA model is that they uh is it, that it sort of revolves around these these what are called empowered program managers and so um instead of either having some sort of like like manager level person or like an executive say like okay this is what gonna do um, and then at the same time and uh, also contrasted to having a researcher say okay this is what I want to do um, you have these, these program managers who are given like an incredible amount of leeway, um, to go to the researchers, try to understand what the the researchers think. And then like, then go to people in the military and see what they need. Um, and then basically design a program that coordinates the, the efforts of several research groups that go across, um, academia and industry, um, to try to accomplish fairly or audacious goals. Um, and, and I think so the thing that really makes them difference it, different is one um, just the the structure of the program managers and then two the the amount of leeway that those those program managers are given.
0: Gotcha. that makes a lot of sense. It does seem like freedom, does seem to be really important in these in these things and yeah. and giving like one guy you can go wring his neck if it doesn't work out in 10 years and like like just go manage it yeah and exactly. we see that with COVID right the best things that have happened in the U.S. are like okay we appoint some Army Corps of Engineers guy and we say go do it and here's 26 billion dollars and you get a vaccine yeah and like exactly record amount of sound.
1: I, I think a really consistent thing that that I've observed is that um the, the thing that seems crucial to all these things is like trust that you need to trust. be able to like trust that like this person, if you give them a lot of power, they're actually going to go do the right thing. Um, gotcha. And so like, I think a almost like a systematic lack of trust may be another thing that like, like, I, I think one of the the core reasons that we're seeing all this slow down, because like, if you don't trust people, then you either need to restrict their action or like force them
0: to like give you lots of metrics. That, that makes a lot of sense. And, and you see this in like the defense contractors. So uh, so our CTO, a really good friend of mine, he uh, he won the technologist of the year at Lockheed Martin. And nice. he, desc- he will sit there and describe sometimes, okay, so like, what does Lockheed Martin manufacture? will? And I'm like, I don't know, you know, F-35s, you know? He's like, no, it's billable hours. That's what matters. And it's like, it's firm fixed priced and you've got billable hours. And that's because the con- contractors, you know, one time they s- screwed over the government and they were selling these Cokes in Iraq for like 10 bucks to pop. Well, you know, they were in actuality, it probably cost them like seven bucks a pop. But, you know, this is a big, big news story. And so you go in and, and you, it's like because one bad thing happens, you create this yeah. rule for everybody and it just piles on and piles on and piles yeah. on. And then it just gets worse and worse and worse.
1: Exactly. That, that, it, that nails it. Um, and, and I think you see that. Sort of everywhere um yeah i I would i would argue that darpa actually could not like in its current form in the government could not be started today and that it's basically been get like grandfathered in because it was started in in the 50s
0: and had such a good track record interesting yeah it it could just it's a yeah that's really and that's a real problem right that's a real problem yeah um absolutely And and the only solutions I've seen that seem to work at all, have you seen this? So uh, you're in North Carolina right now. Did you see the DMV?
1: Uh, In North Carolina?
0: This is really interesting. So the DMV, and I'm not sure exactly why they did this, but this has actually worked pretty well. So if you ever do anything with the DMV now, uh, it's really cool. You can do it all through an app at this point. Nice. It, It works much better than it used to. And how did they get there? Well, they actually, they took the DMV, which was in Raleigh and moved it, 60 miles east to my hometown, Rocky Mountain, in the middle of nowhere. And what that did was essentially 70% of the people quit and you can rebuild the organization. And like, so, so so I do wonder if, you know, the answer is, well, DC goes to Kansas City or something. I don't know, just yeah. somewhere in the middle. And, North and we're Dakota. Just, yep, you know what? And we're just going to restart it, right? In, in yeah. Bozeman, Montana or something.
1: Yeah, well, that that's another thing about DARPA that I think actually is, like, does... Uh, really help is that there it's just like program managers are out after five years. Like it doesn't matter how, like, it doesn't matter how good a job that you did. It doesn't matter how, if you're, if you do a really, really bad job, you're out before five years. Um, but uh, yeah. And, and so I think that, that there, there really is something to that sort of like refresh um, that short tenure.
0: Yeah. Do, do you know how they had the idea for DARPA originally? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, it, it was both basically uh, like Dwight Eisenhower freaking out over um, like, like, like uh, so w- what it was is, if I get the story correctly, it was, it was that there were th- th- like, this was like height of the Cold War. Um, like the Russians are just starting to t- test H-bombs. We need to be able to understand like, what like what they're doing and defend ourselves from them and so there's like sort of all these like crazy programs going on in uh in the military to try to apply science to these like these critical national defense problems right and so they're like okay we're just gonna like stick it all together in this in this one
0: agency wow yeah that's uh it's also interesting are there any other keys you think that they've had to keep it Avoiding entropy in DARPA itself.
1: Yeah, well, so I I, I would I would caveat it with like I don't think that they have completely uh, okay so avoided entropy. Interesting. Good, um, so so I would like uh, I, I think that it has like slowly become more and more of a government agency, and so it's like I don't want anybody thinking that it's perfect, but it is right. still like really like considering how well they've done uh, over the course of sixty years, like. Uh, It's really impressive, impressive. Um, but like ways ways to avoid entropy. I think it's one um, a a big one that I think maybe is understated is the fact that it stayed really small. Um, It's interesting. It's about a hundred program managers, and like my hunch is that that number is not a coincidence and it like happens to be right around Dunbar's number. And my my hunch is that there is something to the fact that like everybody in the organization can kind of know what everybody else is up to um, that actually helps build that trust that we were talking about. Um, Interesting. So so I think that that's, that's really clutch. And then also what it means is that um, they, because it's small and because it actually has relatively small amount of money um in the grand scheme of things with dod funding like it's it's um like just over a little more than billion dollars a year um gotcha and uh that's that's a lot of money but not a lot compared to dod funding and so what that means is that there's a little bit less pressure um gotcha to to deliver and the the anecdote that i love is um there was a a director in the nineties actually went to Congress and petitioned to have DARPA's budget lowered um, because, (laughs) yeah. And and he made the argument that like, if you give us too much money, you're going to expect too much out of us. And I think this is actually another way of uh, creating like a little bit of slack is, is that um, if you have a lot like if you're overfunded then you have no slack uh to to sort of like try crazy stuff um so so i think that that like the size is is another way that they've managed to avoid entropy um and and i think it's also just like this is like really sort of tropey but like they get really good people like they um interesting like they they really uh focus on just like they don't care about backgrounds very much. It's just like, okay, like who can we get in here? Who can we'll do a good
0: job? Yeah, exactly. That makes a lot of sense. And it also seems like keeping it small like that means that you don't have this problem where you're forcing money in places where, like maybe it's like, uh, I don't know, this is not like a great idea, but we're doing it just because we got to keep this and you want to keep your budget, right? You always want to try and keep yeah, your budget so you're going to spend yeah, it. We exactly. see this in like corporate environments at all times. It's like, well, we got $100,000 <laughs> left. Got to go buy something, right? Because they're going to cut our budget next year. Yeah, exactly. That's interesting. Um, so I wanted to move on to another topic. Uh, do you think problems, and this is a very large, very large <laughs> question, so I want to preface it. Um do you think uh, problems have gotten harder in general in science and technology
1: yeah that that's a really good question that I am not sure I have a good answer
0: to It's a very hard question
1: um, I yeah I, well I think that it depends on where we're looking right okay. like it's it's like like I think that like certainly, like problems in physics, like like any any field with a name, I think that the problems have gotten harder. but that's like okay. kind that's... of the definition of a field. Um but then I think the the tr- like the I think the problem is that we haven't been in um as fast as we used to. And so it's like that's that's almost. What what I think the the real problem is more so than like the problems have gotten harder because it's like 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 let's think through this. Um, if like the problems were harder, like I feel like the problems are are like exactly as hard as people can solve almost by definition. Where gotcha. it's like like I, yeah, I don't know how how would you compare like the hardness of two problems?
0: That's difficult, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. That's really difficult. Yeah, it's always, yeah. Yeah. It, uh, yeah. Where do you even start, right? Yeah.
1: I mean, it's like definitely, um, you know, it's, it's like, like
0: to, maybe you know it if you see it. Like maybe that's it, but it's like obscenity yeah. or something like that. I don't know.
1: Well, let's, let's, let's. I, I think maybe a proxy is like so equipment is definitely like to, in order to do a lot of cutting edge experiments um, equipment is definitely more expensive in some areas. Um, right. Like, right. Yeah. And, and that's, that's definitely true. But at the same time, uh, we're, we're a much wealthier society than we were a hundred, 200 years ago. Right. Um, so does that, that balance out? Um, and then the cost of equipment has fallen in, in other areas, right? Like sequencing right. a genome is much, much less expensive than it was years ago. Um, so it's just like, yeah, I, I, i i struck, like i i think it's 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 a good question to think about but a possibly impossible one to answer but gotcha. just because it's not answerable does not mean it's not worthwhile to like talk Ponder. about and think about together yeah
0: definitely I I, I I yeah i do really like uh your heuristic if it has a name by definition the pro yeah th- these problems will be more difficult and i think yeah. that that it's almost because there are more people looking, right? It's
1: yeah. Well, well, yeah. Well, that's 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 another thing. Is like, yeah. It's like like once once you say like okay, like it's physics, and like then you have like a whole bunch of physicists and physicists yeah. rush in. Yeah, exactly. Um. So, so yeah.
0: Do Do you think uh, some of the problems we've seen with uh, slower, well, I, what I, I see to be slower advances in like biology are like. I have this weird thought that, uh, people get selected into physics. You just mentioned physics. So like physics is like, that is the hardest thing. That's the most interesting. And I had a really smart roommate in college, you know, like, this is what I want to go do. And I was always like, man, like, I think like there are more gains to be made in other places. Right. And not at like the top end of like, you know, string theory or something where only a hundred people understand it. And there's you know no way for me to evaluate whether it has any salt or at at all. Right. Like, I don't know. Um, Sorry, like the, I, I think I,
1: I missed the, the
0: yeah, question. Do, do you think we, uh, we select, uh, we've got a poor selection mechanism in that perhaps like physics is high status and that it sucks up a lot of talent that could be going yeah. to like, I particularly I think about biology. I, I actually think we might have the opposite problem. Interesting. Um, in,
1: in that, like, I think biology, like at least now, Uh, biology is like the the new hotness. Like you look at, I I don't know. It's like, I try to keep my pulse on like, what are the smart people interested in? And it feels like they're all interested in biology. Um, And it feels like, I don't know, for for me, at least, I I run across so many people who went, like originally went towards physics, but then sort of like realized that it was a shit show. And then they like went into Biology or finance or computer science, um, so so I think the problem might actually be that like we don't have enough smart people in physics because it is, it's become such like a esoteric
0: mess. Right, right, less applications uh, and more. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. That's really interesting.
1: Yeah, I don't know though. Like it, uh, it's, um, yeah,
0: very cool. So. I, I wanted to move on now. So you studied medieval history and mechanical engineering in undergrad, right? Yeah. Yes. That's correct. Uh, and, and so you, you're talking about uh you know fields that don't have a name. Well, this one has one now. What do you think about Cleo Dynamics uh, or in Peter Turchin and things like yeah, that? Yeah.
1: I I want to like it. Like right, you know, it's too. like we 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 all want psychohistory to be a thing, right? Yes. Uh, but as far as I can tell, it is no more a predictive science than just straight up historians pattern matching like it, it it's like i so so i've not studied it deeply so i'm not well well qualified to sort of opine on it i haven't read gotcha. his books um i've read several of his articles i've read um sort of commentary on it um gotcha. but but as far as i can tell like it's it's for the most part it's just like narrative pattern matching um similar to any other kind of narrative pattern matching and like there's value to that and like i I think that that's that's the thing is like i don't uh want to denigrate that and i think that the like what we don't do is we don't actually assign enough value to like non-scientific knowledge and i think that there's there's probably a lot of non-scientific knowledge that he's poking at and it's worth understanding but then sort of like saying that it's it's scientific like predictive knowledge um would also be incorrect
0: gotcha it it almost seems like the using the science aspect is almost like a sales tool right like you know like wow like look what we're finally making it an empirical these antiquarians running around you know just like i i I might i don't know I, i i would i would actually take the the charitable view and say like
1: i think that they actually do see it as, as scientific. Um, I I don't think it's just a sales tool. Um, I just, I don't think, I just, I don't think that it's, um, there, there's sort of like no theory behind the hypotheses, right? It's just like, okay, like let's match some patterns and then create some post hoc explanations for, for why we see these patterns.
0: Um, yeah. What do you think? Uh, it's tough to tell. I mean, it's really like, it's so complex. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, and I do applaud them for trying. I mean, I think it's a, it's a great thing to try to do. Yeah. And it might,
1: um, it might, might be like, like, that's the thing is like, I think that the, the, like we, we, we want to render these like immediate judgments, but like, like going back to, to Newton and, and like astronomy, like, like, and alchemy, right. Like, yeah, like we got chemistry because we had a bunch of people t- like, trying alchemy for hundreds of years right and and if like and if we'd gone and said like oh you shouldn't do alchemy because it's not science then we, we like which would have been correct right exactly uh we would never get chemistry so i guess like my it, it's like i occupy this weird space where it's like i both want to say like no it's it's not really science but then that doesn't necessarily mean that we should denigrate throw it, it. out
0: yeah. right exactly Makes a lot of sense. That's cool. Um, so I, I had a fun question for you that I, yeah, I was interested in. So David, uh, we had David Friedman on and I asked him a similar question. Um, the question is, is what do pe- most lay people not understand about medieval history?
1: Oh boy. Uh, I think the, the sort of, there's one, like I'll give the, the, More like the more common like answer, I think, would be that uh people people regular pretty like assume that sort of like nothing happened in the Middle Ages, right? Like that it was just sort of like uh, you know, it was like Roman Empire declined. Um, and then there's like a whole bunch of people like digging around in the dirt and hitting each other with swords for (laughs) like uh for you know almost a thousand years, and then uh uh, the Renaissance happened, right? And so it's like, yeah. and and it's like actually people, like they they did a lot of inventing. It's like they figure out how to do windmills and like actually a lot of philosophical breakthroughs um, happened in in the Middle Ages. Um, and so I that's think cool. that that's that's one. Um, I think the the really interesting thing that I love about medieval history is that um, people. I, I think actually take this really charitable, like this play thing that they, they think this way that, that really comes to their hearts. And I think that people in the middle ages thought like we do, like it was just like, like, Interesting. they're just like us. Um, and I think that that is actually a misconception, like people literally like in their, the core of their beings, they thought very differently from us. Like, 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 um, I think like relics are a really good example of this where like relics are like, literally it's like a a body part from a saint, right? Right. And they would like carry it through the the streets um, and people would like flip out and get really excited and like think of it as if that saint was literally like walking through their street. And uh, like, so the modern interpretation would be like, oh, well they're really excited about it because other people are excited about it, or right. they're really excited about it um, because it was like a festival that with like the the like getting to like have a party with the saint, and it's right. like no, you like when you read the primary sources, as far like as far as I can tell, like they actually just thought of it as the saint was walking through the street, um, and so Whoa. I think that that yeah, like and, and that's, um, it it. It's it's really interesting, um, and it's like I like to say that, like other people are both much more similar to you than you expect, but at the same time they're like much more different <laughs> than you can even imagine. Man,
0: that that is, yeah, that that is incredibly interesting. I've I've had that that thought. So I really like to read about the Civil War, and I especially like to read. Newspapers that I read now, like how did they report oh, about this cool. event? So, like I read about the Economist, the Atlantic, and uh, the New York Times, were all like, you know, very well established. And they have archives. Yeah, and you can go back and read these things, and like what people thought, and it's just like incredibly bizarre to like a modern person. Like, you know, does that make sense? Like, and, and yeah, it's absolutely. accurate Like, it's like it's hard to grok how different we thought about these things. Yeah, I guess that makes exactly. Sense. Exactly, and I think it's,
1: and, and the really humbling thing about it for me at least is like, well, in like 50 or 100 years, like how bizarre is the way that we think about things now going to be? Um, and it, it sort of gives you a little bit of humility, where it's like, I feel like some people kind of have this attitude that's like, okay, like we've like the, like the morality that we have now and like our priorities are like the correct thing. Right. It's like, well, maybe.
0: Maybe exactly, <laughs> well, and even even within our lifetimes, I mean, like, gay marriage was not like a majority opinion, it, you know. Like, and, and that's almost it's unthinkable nowadays. For, yeah, exactly. For me and the, everyone I interact with, and that's just bizarre. That's just bizarre to think about. And that's a short time domain. That's not you know hundreds of years. Yeah, that's like our lifetimes. Yeah, that's weird. Interesting. Yeah. So, so Ben, I have a uh, one last question for you for today. Um, totally. So, so what do the next 10 years look like for you in, in working on innovation systems? Uh,
1: well. It's a big question. Um, no, it's not yeah. a small question. So I can tell you what. Let's see. Um, so I will give you the optimistic scenario that I'm shooting for. I like it. Uh, and obviously, like, this could very easily change. Um, but uh, the, the sort of the the game plan is, um, I hope to put my time and money where my mouth is and, uh, try to create an organization that sort of like riffs on the ARPA model. Like that's what I hope to do. Um, and obviously that can, like what that ends up looking like is sort of like can change, but like, my my working hypothesis right now is that it's like, create a private organization that does uh, revolve around this, this program manager driven model um, and sort of use it to both enable more, more awesome stuff, but also hopefully sort of like uh, shh, demonstrate a, a new institutional model um because i i um sort of unlike startups uh i don't like i don't think that it'll scale like to to the yeah. point about like darba I, I think one of the the things that's kept it working well is that it's small um and so so hopefully it'll be like okay like we need many more of these things uh right. we need many more people doing that so uh and hopefully uh, that I will still be working on that in in ten years um, because uh, I see it as a you know multi decade project.
0: Definitely, definitely. Yeah. And, and what do you see as the the biggest challenges to making it happen? Oh boy, um, I think
1: the it like so so. Very abstractly, I think the biggest challenge is almost like surviving long enough without being pushed into something suboptimal, like into like Some a suboptimal form.
0: Chasing uh, a product rabbit hole or something. Yeah, chasing a product
1: of. rabbit hole or becoming like a consultancy or yeah. like, like sort of without being like... Um, <laughs> it's like distract becoming distracted so like surviving long enough to um uh actually sort of like become self-sustaining like I I think that that's that's the goal like to become a a self-catalyzing thing um I think that's that's one challenge and then I think the other is like staying really honest towards like doing awesome like Awesome stuff without like drinking your own Kool-Aid. Right. <laughs> in a <way>. That's fair. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think that those are like the obviously like there's there's really challenge high, like challenges like like how do you make money work like right, how do you I make the organizational like structure work and it's like these are like huge challenges but I, I think they sort of all are sort of the, kind of the obvious the ones
0: right like yeah like yeah. That one would think about but that that's does seem really important is how do you keep the the mission at the forefront. Through, yeah. throughout all the distractions, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. But it, like, cool. it, like while you know, keeping the lights on. <laughs> right, exactly, keep it by fed, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's cool.
0: Well, Ben, uh, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find your work, and and where should they go looking for you? And um, uh,
1: yeah. yeah, um, I mean, I'm I'm on Twitter, um, sort of at, at Ben underscore Reinhardt, um, and then my website is just uh, my name Benjamin Reinhardt com. Um, those are sort of the the two places on the internet that you can usually find me.
0: Very cool. Well, thanks, Ben. We appreciate well, this it. This is great. This is
1: super fun. Thank you for having Especially.
0: me on. Had a great time.
1: All right. Take care.
0: Well, that's our show for today. I'm Will Jarvis and I'm Will's dad. Join us next week for more narratives.